Jesus in prayer. This is the real Lord's Prayer. The prayer we call the Lord's Prayer in Matthew is really the disciples' prayer because Jesus says, hey, when you pray, pray kind of like this, Ashley, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, not hallowed be Ashley's name. That's really the disciples' prayer, okay? This is the Lord at prayer at a very strategic moment because it's less than 12 hours away from the crucifixion. He knows that. The disciples aren't really understanding it yet, but we can really learn about his priorities and his prayer life through this prayer. Last week we looked at the first part of it. In verses 1 through 5 of the real Lord's Prayer, Jesus prayed for himself and his mission. In verses 6 through 19, Jesus prayed about the 11 believing apostles' ministry and mission in founding the New Testament church. And, and kind of the thing that we saw as an overriding theme was this. The importance that Jesus placed on prayer, Mel, underscores the importance of prayer for his disciples then and now. And I think too often we uh, maybe minimize prayer. We don't toil in prayer. And if Jesus uh, emphasized prayer to the extent we see him throughout the Gospels, but especially in this intently personal prayer of chapter 17, it ought to underscore how important it is in our lives. Now this morning... We'll finish the real Lord's Prayer. We'll look at verses 20 through 26. And we'll see that Jesus in this portion of this prayer is going to pray for everyone who would believe in his name through the ministry of the apostles. And that includes Carla Buchanan and Mike uh, Palovic and most importantly, of course, Brad McCoy. We're going to see the Lord Jesus praying for us in and through this prayer. And I think the overriding idea that we learn here is this. Christian unity is a fact. Occasionally when we get certain movements going that may be very good and powerful, um, especially in parachurch, you hear people who should know better say, we've got to create unity in the church. We've got to create unity in the church. You know what? You don't need to do that. It's already there. What we need to do is recognize it and manifest it. There's nothing that Dallas Seminary or Tanglewood Bible Fellowship or uh, New Tribes Mission or any other group, Campus, Crus Campus Crusade, there's nothing they're going to do, Ken, to create unity in the church. It's organic. It's automatic. Every born-again believer is part of the capital C Universal Church. And I think every believer ought to be plugged into a biblically relevant local church. But uh, we don't have to do anything to create it, but we need to celebrate it and manifest it. And we need to realize how radical this New Testament church thing is because it transcends color, country, and culture. And that's, I think, the overall theme of this portion of the real Lord's Prayer. So before we dive in and uh, study this wonderful portion of God's Word, let's pray uh, for our teachability of God's Word and also for those who protect and serve us, both in the military, uh, our peace officers, our firefighters, those kind of folks out there. And uh, Danny, Paulet, uh, would you lead us in prayer in that direction?
Thanks a lot, Danny. Um, Yeah, our our passage this morning emphasizes the unity in the Christian church, regardless of color, country, or culture. And uh, with that in mind, as as part of my uh, effort to warm up your capacity for abstract thinking, which you're going to need to understand this passage anyway, we're going to go on the flip side of that. I feel like, you know what, uh, even if your pastor is a yellow dog, uh, if the church is basically biblical, I'd say hang in there. If they're totally off the reservation, just find something that's more biblical and make it better. But there are sometimes people do need to make ch- uh, church changes. And uh, these are just some hip- helpful hints. You might need to change your local church if the current Sunday morning practice, or practice, the, I mean, let me read it slower. The current Sunday morning preaching ser- series <laughs> is a verse-by-verse study of the first book of Oprah. That's not good. The pastor failed to get into Dallas Theological Seminary, but he did graduate from the Dallas Institute of Astrology. (laughs) Now, that's impressive, but not great. Uh, To become more inclusive, the entire elder board recently converted to Islam. That's not a good church, Jonathan. I'm telling you. And finally, uh, you need to change churches if anybody in the church looks anything at all like these two guys. If they look like those two guys... (laughs) You can get arrested for wearing that now. (laughs) That was me and Tommy had his mullet, and I I think that was like after the first softball season. We were actually, I think, seven and seven, having a big celebration. Yeah. Um, uh, In addition to looking at the last part of the real Lord's Prayer this morning, uh, we're also finishing up a portion of Scripture called the Upper Room Discourse. And I can't emphasize this enough for you, Gay. The Upper Room Discourse, I think, is at the very heart of what the Bible teaches about spirituality. It's Jesus telling us as believers what fellowship with him looks like after he's ascended back to heaven. Okay? And that's where we are in our, our entire lives. The apostles are just about to enter that kind of dynamic. And if you look at the Gospel of John, the Upper Room Discourse is right in the middle of it. It's well, not working. Right in the middle of it. See right there? Right there, right in the middle of it. And the upper discourse is all about how do we spiritually fellowship as believers with a physically absent Savior. Breaks down the three parts. First, we have a pattern for fellowship, uh, which isn't me organizing things better or giving better orders or giving better sermons. It's about all of us serving one another and meeting needs. Jesus washes the disciples' feet as a pattern. So you redeem everything, good, bad, and ugly that you've had in your life to the glory of God because the Lordship of Christ applies to everything. That's the way it's supposed to work, and that's the pattern for fellowship. Then we saw principles for fellowship, uh, and then we're looking at the prayer for fellowship. The principles of fellowship actually circle in on, zero in on one idea, and I'll show you that in a second. And then this prayer is all about Jesus' mission, the mission of the 11 believing apostles, and the importance of oneness for believers with Christ and other Christians. Beware of Christians that are so spiritual they can't get along with any other Christians. Uh, There's a subset of that. Christians who are so spiritual they can't get along with any clergy. Some people are so spiritual they can't get along with any clergy. Now I can't get along with all the clergy in Duncan myself, but I get along with most of them. So just be aware of that because sometimes uh, people get so spiritual they violate what Jesus teaches about fellowship in chapter 17. So I think they're redefining it maybe. Now if you look at the literary structure, I'm not going to take the time to revisit that, but you got that very special structure of Jesus' thoughts that move toward a center and away from it. 
the very center of this upper room discourse is found in chapter 15, and it's all about one thing, the concept of abiding in Christ. He doesn't say, okay, I'm going to leave you, and the way you fellowship with me is obey this set of rules or that set of rules. Uh, it's not about obeying rules, although when we're abiding in Christ, we're going to obey the rules. But it's all about a relationship. Uh, Eric Ward, as a believer, both on Sunday morning and Monday morning at Marathon Oil, needs to be abiding in Christ. It doesn't mean that you've got to be a pastor, missionary, or a youth minister, or a mus musical minister. Uh, you can be just a regular working stiff. But abiding in Christ is not about rules, it's about a relationship. It's a believer recognizing and responding a brand from the heart to the one who has saved him and therefore is his Lord, his best friend, his God, his uh, center of his life. And it's all about a relational connection with Christ that drives us to obey the rules without ever noticing how wonderful we are because we're not focusing on us, we're focusing on him. Okay? So that's the essence of the Upper Room Discourse. Today we're going to finish the Upper Room Discourse, not with the pattern of the principles, but with the prayer uh, for fellowship, the prayer for oneness with God and other believers. And last week, as I say, we looked at verses 1 through 19. Today we're going to look at verses 20 through 26. And let me read those in the New American Standard Bible. Jesus says, after having prayed for himself and his mission and the 11 apostles and their mission, he says to the Father as he prays, I do not ask on behalf of these 11 alone, even though they're unique and special as the human foundation of the church, but for Ashley Buchanan, those also who will believe in me through their word, or D Danny Pollock. All of us as New Testament believers have responded the, to the apostolic word. The apostolic word is not just their preaching during their lifetime, but what they wrote uh, that has been canonized as New Testament Scripture. And all the New Testament books were written by apostles or those very intimately associated with apostles like Luke. Wasn't an apostle, but he's very associated with it. The apostle Paul, right? Um, um, somebody else I was going to mention. Um, help me. Uh, Mark would be a good example. Mark's not an apostle, but he's very closely associated with Peter, and he's mentioned by Paul in some of his letters. So verse 20 is saying, I'm praying for David Moore here, not just for Peter, James, and Andrew, my 11, part of my 11. Don't ask on behalf of these 11 uh, who are walking with me, just about approaching the Kidron Valley to get to Gethsemane now, but for those throughout the centuries who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be doctrinally correct and superlapsarian Calvinists or hyper-Arminians or something in between. He's not talking about that. He's assuming a born-again experience, and he's calling and praying, and I think this prayer was answered, has been answered, is being answered, that they may be one. They may have this inherent unity, Carol. So Campus Crusade doesn't have to create unity among the denominations. It's there. Sometimes we conceal it, don't recognize it, don't celebrate it, don't manifest it, but it's there all the time. I'm, he's praying that they'll be one, have an organic spiritual unity, even as he is the second person of Trinity with the first person of Trinity, Father, are one. Like, I am in you and you are in me, that they may also be in us, so the world may believe that you sent me. It's only as we celebrate and manifest Christian unity beyond our individual churches and denominations for born-again believers that we're going to really have an impact on the culture. If we're you know, having a civil war between each other all the time, we're going to waste all of our energy putting each other down. We don't want to do that. 
He says, uh, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I and them, you and me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world, the unsaved world, may know that you sent me, that I'm the unique, exclusive issue and issuer of eternal life, and love them in sending me, John 3, 16, even as I have loved you. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am going, that's a futuristic present, so that they may see my glory uh, in uh, his presence in heaven, which you've given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the Lord prays, though the world has not known you relationally, the world's the set of the unsaved, yet uh, you yet have not known you, yet I have known you. And these, now we're switching back specifically to the eleven, have known that you sent me. They're the one who's going to found the church and write the New Testament. And I have made your name known to them, and they will make it known so that David and Brad can hear it and believe it, so that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. So we're going to look at verses 20 through 26. Jesus prays for us and all other believers, right? Now let me quickly uh, give you my working definition of prayer. This is not directly from Scripture, and it's uh, subject to modification and improvement. But I see prayer not as a crowbar where we kind of pry things out of God's hands, but as a channel of communication, a grace channel of communication, by which believers seek and submit to God's will and which God uses as part of the process through which his plan is worked out in time. So it is relevant. Jesus obviously thinks prayer matters, right? Because think about it. He's praying here just before the arrest. He's praying for stuff. He knows theologically is going to happen. He knows theologically a lot of this stuff's going to happen. But he also knows prayer is part of the process necessary to make it happen in time. It's part of the program. So we are responsible even though God is sovereign, Okay. Now remember, let's say a word about when and where this is all happening, and then we'll jump into verse 20 again. Uh, when is this happening? This is happening just hours before the crucifixion. The upper room discourse, which isn't all given in the upper room. It starts in the upper room in Jerusalem, right? In chapters 13 and 14. But at the end of chapter 14, it's, Jesus says, arise, let's go from here. And where are they heading? After the Last Supper and after he begins the, the upper room discourse, where is he going? Going to Gethsemane. So he can pray and be arrested and the next morning crucified. So we're right here just before the ultimate events, the climactic events, the crucifixion, the atoning sacrifice of Christ for our sins. What happens three days later? The literal bodily supernatural resurrection which validates the saving power of the atonement. And then what happens 40 days after that? The ascension and 10 days after that, Acts 2, is when the New Testament church starts. And that's when the unity starts. That's what that's Jesus is praying here, for what the Holy Spirit will initiate here. It's going to happen, but in order for it to happen, he must pray for it. Both those things are always in play. Now, if we have a bird's eye view of the ancient first century city of Jerusalem, uh, according to early tradition, the upper room was somewhere in this part of the old city. In modern Jerusalem, if you go to the, the old city uh, in current day Jerusalem, they kind of rebuilt a kind of reproduction of that. And you go up on a second floor of a building that would have been similar to the one the Lord would have had Last Supper in, but it's not the exact same building. But yeah, he would have, uh, he and the guys would have left 
there, the upper room, wherever it was, roughly there, and marched right past the temple on their way to the Mount of Olives, Gethsemane, so he'd get arrested and be taken back, ironically enough, to the high priest's home, which is right very near to where the dinner was, right? But that's where we are. We're, we're right here approaching the Kidron Valley. Jesus knows everything about this. They're still getting clued in, and he's praying uh, out loud. We're told he looked up and is praying. He's praying while he walks. That's called multitasking. <laughs> A lot of us pray when we drive. I would not recommend you close your eyes, Carol, when you pray as you're driving. Jesus, hey, Sean, his eyes were open. He's walking. You know, I don't want to bump into Peter, James, or John. Those guys are slower walkers than he was, okay? Look at verse 20. We're going to see who Jesus is praying for. It'd be us in verse 20. What Jesus is praying for us and how Jesus' prayer was answered for us. Look at verse 20, who Jesus is praying for. This is where he's praying for Ron Miller. He's praying specifically for those believers, every believer in this room, every believer on the planet, regardless of color, country, or culture, and of all of church history. He's praying for them here that we'll have this organic, inherent unity, which we have, but we need to celebrate and manifest. I'm not praying just on behalf of these 11. I've already prayed for them, verses 6 through 19. But for those, for all those also who, futuristic present, who will believe in me through their word. Okay? What are the ABCs of uh, Christianity? The ABCs of Christianity, the ABCs of spirituality are B and A. Not DNA, but B and A. B, believe on Christ and receive salvation, receive the gift of everlasting life, abide in Christ and express, manifest your salvation. Uh, Ninety times in the Gospel of John, we're told that believing in Christ is the terms for receiving everlasting life. What does that mean, Henry? Uh, Do you believe in China? You believe there's a country called China? I know Henry does. Clay, you believe in it too? Okay. Uh, Do you believe in Babe Ruth? There was a baseball player named Babe Ruth many years ago. Uh, Do you believe uh, OSU beat OU (laughs) 38-35 last week? Do you believe that? Yeah. Uh, That's mental assent to facts. That's not saving faith. Saving faith involves full consent of the will. It's active, receptive trust. As many as received him, to them he gave the right of consent of God. The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Sin, we got it. Righteousness, we need it. Judgment, it's coming. Opens our hearts so we can see and believe. And believing is not meritorious. It's not signing a card, joining a church, being baptized, giving something up, uh, giving something to, taking something away. It's active, receptive trust. If your theology of saving faith doesn't explain the terrorist on the cross, you need to change it, okay? What is the terrorist? He's not a thief. The Romans didn't crucify thieves. They only crucified terrorists who killed Romans. Uh, What did the thief on the cross say to receive salvation? Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. I'm a sinner. I can't fix it. You can, and I want you to. Wow. We're saved by active receptive trust, nothing meritorious. Are you kidding me? There's no religion in the world like that. Bingo. You understand us now, right? Um, for by grace are you saved through faith. Is that not of yourselves? It's the gift of God, right, Redina? Not of works. So there's nothing for us to brag about. Who gets all the, the uh, praise for David's dribbling salvation? His Savior, because the Savior does all the work. So the Gospel of John really emphasizes that, but the very center of the Gospel of John 
has this upper room discourse which is addressed not to unbelievers to believe, but to believers, which says you need to know me, love me, and believe in me more. But he's emphasizing the idea of abiding in Christ. He doesn't give us rules. He focuses on the relationship. Scott is to abide in Christ on Sunday morning when he's in church, Monday morning when he's in Halliburton, and uh, next week when you change your first diaper as a grandfather, whenever, whatever it is, you know, it's all good, right? Uh, it's recognizing and responding relationally to the one who saved us. So, of course, we're obeying the rules, you know? Um, we've had so many young mothers and more we're praying for, but I know young mothers want, I, I know when, when Jamie was born, I realized how intimidating it is for the father, much less the mother, and mom, mom does 98% of the work. But you drive away from that hospital, and it's kind of like, what do we do now? You, know, you buy a car, they give you an owner's manual. All they did was have us sign some papers at the hospital, and now, boom, we've got to do this thing, right? And there, there's good rules and regulations and books written by different people on how to be a good mother, what you do with babies and this and that. I think most of you uh, ladies probably learn it from your own mother. But uh, mothers, by and large, do very well, not because they've got the right set of rules or they all read the same uh, nurturing, loving maternal care books, but because they have a relationship with that baby. They love that baby, and they're man of, that's why they get up 18 times in the middle of the night, right, Michelle? Unless you can wake up Joe, and I know he's a deep sleeper, right? He's hard to wake up. And you do all that not because you're obeying a bunch of rules, but because you've got a connection, a relationship. And that's the way real spirituality works, right? It's not just behavior modification. It's actually transformation from the heart. Now, notice verse 20. He's, he's not just praying for the 11 but for those who would believe through their word. Uh, the apostles actually are kind of a controversial group because David, for 2,000 years of church history, there have been different views of exactly how these guys operated and should operate now. Uh, one large group based in Rome believes that uh, the, every generation you have a new apostle who's kind of over the visible church. That's called the doctrine of apostolic succession, I personally don't see that. I don't think we get new apostles. I think the apostles are unique. How many times do you lay a foundation for a building? Once. If you live in Oklahoma, you have to have it repaired you know, every 15 years, but you only lay the foundation once, right? The, apost the apostolic ministry was a foundational ministry. Rather than apostolic succession, I'm personally convinced that we have a succession of apostolic truth that is lived out every generation. Look at the uniqueness of the apostles, though. Look at Acts chapter 1 real quickly. Uh, we need to admire and respect but never worship the apostles. Uh, we also, I think, need to realize they're very unique. Some of the stuff they do is unique. It's not intended to be uh, replicated or reproduced in every generation. Um, and Luke, who's not an apostle but who's writing under inspiration and under the supervision of Paul as far as ministry is concerned, very good friend of the Apostle Paul's. Also, Luke, as you know, was a medical doctor. So those spirit, Christians are too spiritual to go to the doctor, don't realize that Paul took a doctor with him everywhere he went, a medical doctor, you know? So you need to remember that. He says in Acts 1, verse 1, the first account, we call it the Gospel of Luke, I composed Theophilus about all that Jesus began to do and teach during his physical ministry on earth until the ascension, that is, until the day he was taken up to heaven after he, by the Holy Spirit, had given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen, to these, to the apostles, he also presented himself after his death as a resurrected reality, alive after sufferings, uh, by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days. How do we know there's a 40-day period, Gabe, between the resurrection 
in the ascension, what verse would you go to to prove that? Acts 1-3, right here. To these he presented himself alive over a period of 40 days. That's how we get the, the number 40. Look at Acts 10. This is Peter preaching to Gentiles. And that was the big controversy. Can Gentiles believe in the Jewish Messiah and be saved, or do they have to pre-qualify by becoming Jews first and then believe and be saved? And Peter, Paul, and the New Testament radically affirm that we're not just a sect, S-E-C-T, S-E-C-T of Judaism. Uh, Christianity is the fulfillment of Judaism, and you don't put new wine in old wine skins. It's a whole new deal. And Peter's preaching, Acts 10, 39. I love this. Uh, portion of his message, he says, we, talking about the apostles, are witnesses of all the things Jesus did both in the land of the Jews generally and in Jerusalem specifically. They put him to death by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him up, resurrected him to validate the saving power of his death on the third day and granted that the resurrected Christ be, become visible over a period of 40 days to multiple people, multiple settings, not to everybody, that he had seen during his uh, physical ministry before the crucifixion, but to witnesses, especially the apostles who were chosen beforehand by God, that is to us, who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach to the people the apostolic preaching, the apostolic word that would be the basis of the New Testament church. And to solemnly testify that Jesus is the one who's the exclusive issue and issue of eternal life. He's the one who's been appointed by God the Father as judge of the living and the dead. Love verse 43. If you circle stuff in your Bible, circle verse 43 or underline it. Of him, that is of Jesus Christ, crucified and risen, all the Old Testament prophets bear witness that through his name, who and what he is, everyone who what? Becomes a Southern Baptist, becomes a Roman Catholic, goes to seminary, signs a card, does something different? No. Everyone who, who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Wow. Uh, so Jesus is not just praying for the 11 now. He's praying for us. The 11 are the basis of the New Testament church, Jesus being the cornerstone, right? Ephesians 2.20. But the foundation is definitely the preaching and the uh, mission of the New Testament apostles. Look at verse 21 through 24. We're going from... Uh, who Jesus is praying for in this section, us, to what Jesus is praying for us. If you're a believer, put your name in the blank, okay? Um, uh, Rick Schallemeyer, Olga, I always want to say Olga Corbett, because deep in my mind I think of that phenomenal Russian gymnast from many years ago that now has kind of aged badly, but uh, it's a whole different thing. Uh, <laughs> Olga Pollock, and we, it all happens to us, you know, or whoever, whatever your name is, if you're a believer. Uh, look at verse 21 through 23. He's praying that we would celebrate and manifest unity on earth uh, despite our denominational differences, our color differences, our culture differences, our country differences, right? Look at verse 21. Uh, I'm not just praying for these 11, but for those who believe in, uh, through their word that they may all be one. And there he's praying for the organic unity that we need to celebrate and express, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. How's the world going to take our message seriously, Dr. D? We need better arguments. We need more educated clergy. Uh, have good arguments. Have biblical arguments. Uh, if God calls you for higher theological education, get it. I loved it. It helped me. 
But he said the way the world's going to notice that we're for real is if we get along, if we uh, celebrate and manifest this oneness that we have. Uh, he says, uh, so that the world may believe that you sent me as they notice how much these Christians love one another despite denominal differences or differences about the color of the carpet and those big issues that we all argue about. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them. The word glory, doxa, uh, doesn't necessarily mean expression of Shekinah. It can just mean power or, or kind of dynamic. So he's saying the power, the salvific power you've given me, I've given to them. You know, they're going to preach the gospel. They're going to get this thing started. And then every generation, we're just one generation from extinction as Christians. We've got to live it out and pass it on to the next generation. That they may be one just as we are one. I and them, you and me, that they may be perfected in unity. Apart from it, we're not what we should be spiritually, collectively, or individually. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I declare that they also who you've given me be with me in the future. Uh, not just personal union on earth, but personal union in heaven is what this thing's all about. It's not just a philosophy of life. It's an out-of-this-world faith so that they may see my glory, which you've given me, which he veiled, as uh, Doug read about in the call of worship, for you love me before the foundation of the world. Notice this theme, Carol, that as we have unity, uh, the world's going to notice, it's going to impact them in verse 21 and verse 23 again. Uh, I and them, you and me, that they may be perfected in unity, so the world may know that you sent me. That should sound familiar. Hold your place. Go back to 13, chapter 13, verse 33. Uh, this is something the Lord introduced earlier. And as that, that structure of thought where he, he starts somewhere and moves toward the center and away from it, you get a lot of overlapping themes. Kind of reinforces the whole thing. And look at chapter 13, 33 through 35, where Jesus is talking about the same kind of thing here in slightly different terminology. Uh, he says directly to the 11 believing apostles in chapter 13, verse 33, little children... I'm with you a little while longer. I'm going to be on the cross in 12 hours. Uh, you will seek me, and as I said to you, uh, and I said to the Jews earlier in Jerusalem, now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come now. A new, fresh commandment I give to you that you love one another even as I loved you. You might say, that's not new. Uh, Old Testament's all over several places. says love others like you love yourself. That's not a New Testament concept. That's an uh, Old Testament concept too. But this is even ranking it or ramping it up more intently, it's not just love others like you love yourself. What is it? That you love one another as Jesus loved us. See, that's the highest form of agape love, that you love one another like that. By this, all men, all human beings that aren't believers will know, will have a validation that we're the disciples of the Savior if we love one another. Go back to chapter 17. Uh, I'm praying they may be one, that the world may believe that you sent me. Verse 23, uh, perfected in unity, that the world may know that you sent me. How's the world going to know that Jesus is for real? Jesus is legitimate. We've got to be connected with one another, not just so spiritual in a, a corner here that our doctrinal position is perfect, but we can't get along with anybody else. That's why the local church is perfect for this kind of thing. Because there's no such thing as a perfect local church. Howard Hendricks used to say, uh, when he pastored, it drove him crazy if people would visit his church and say, I'm not going to, get, I'm not going to your church because it's not perfect. 
He always wanted to say, you know what? Uh, if you ever find a perfect church, which you won't, don't join it because you'll ruin it, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, everybody seems normal till you get to know them, right? And although we've been saved by God's grace, we all leak some oil, we all have some quirks, we all have some rough spots, right? But uh, to get along, you've got to use what some preacher called the baptism technique. A lot of times, Amanda, you've got to hold your nose and lean way over backward to get along with one another in local church. But that's a perfect laboratory to learn to show agape to people who aren't as perfect as you are or I am. And that's just kind of what the plan is, and it's consistent with all this. Uh, notice, he doesn't just pray for their personal unity on earth. He prays, and, and all, I, all that's tied in with our assured future as believers. Verse 24 again, Father, I desire that they who are going to come to faith in me through the apostolic word, the New Testament ultimately, whom you've given me, be with me where I'm going to be. That's futuristic present, talking about heaven, uh, literal heaven, so that they may see my glory. And there he is talking about the manifestation of Shekinah, his deity. We're going to see this for real, which you've given me for you love me before the foundation of the world. And I gave all that up to come to earth. You know, there are several statements in Psalms that are radical. You know, how, how beautiful in the eyes of God are the death of his holy ones, because now they get to come see him, you know. Um, life is on earth is uh, got a lot of wonderful parts to it, but we've got a retirement program as Christians that's out of this world, right? Now, when he's talking about uh, this unity that uh, he wants to see exist, I'm convinced it has existed from the very foundation of the church, and the church wasn't founded when Jesus died, and it wasn't founded when he was resurrected, and it wasn't founded uh, 40 days later when he ascended. It was founded 10 days after that by the plan of God, Acts 2, baptism of the Holy Spirit. That starts the New Testament church. We had Old Testament Israel prior to that. They're not the same thing. The New Testament church does not replace Old Testament Israel. It doesn't happen. can't happen. That's the way God sees part of his church in Duncan, and he likes it. Now, if I was drawing up the scheme, we wouldn't have an oval. We'd have one big circle with a cross in the middle, and me just off that, Pastor Brad McCoy, THM, PhD, that, and everybody who really believed in Jesus and loved Jesus and Duncan would all come listen to me every Sunday. That would be the perfect church, in my opinion. But that's not the program, okay? God likes that program. It centers not on a preacher, not on a denomination, focuses on the cross and the resurrection, and there's assembly of God folks who are believers. Is everybody who goes to the Assembly of God Church necessarily a believer? No. But those who are, uh, are part of God's church. There's the Methodist church. Everybody who attends the Methodist church necessarily a believer? No. But all those who are are part of God's church. Southern Baptist, Northern Baptist. I like that because Southern goes down and Northern goes up. I did it all by myself. Uh, church of the Nazarene, Presbyterians, Lutherans. This is a limited number of ovals because you only have so much space. Is everybody who trots in and out of TBF a believer because they've showed up for church service? No, but all born-again believers who are part of this. And that's the way God sees his church. And it's really a beautiful design, and it's really perfect in so many ways. And you could also put different cultural differences and colors and countries, all the stuff that human beings and sociologists use to categorize people. God just blends it together. Now, people tend to clump. Uh, something you're going to hear people say is, you know, Sunday morning in America is the most segregated hour in the week. And you know what? If, if there are people in the parking lot saying, unless you're Anglo-Saxon and look exactly like or better than Brad and have the same kind of skin color, you can't come in here, 
then that would be evil. But people tend to clump, okay? And the idea that we've got to artificially break through a bunch of stuff that's going to make us less efficient so that we look better when the sociologists take a picture of the congregation, uh, I think is busy work, you know? But for sure, if, uh, and I say that being the only kid on my uh, junior high baseball teams that had black friends at Berry High School, junior high school in Birmingham, Alabama, because I grew up during the Civil Rights Administration, but I actually grew up in Florida, and my parents, who had a lot of quirks, but they were colorblind when it came to people of color, black, white, and brown, yellow. I plug into high, junior high school from Florida, a really pretty good pitcher for my age at that point, and on this baseball team, and we had a couple, the two best players on the team were black guys, but nobody else on the team talked to the best players on the team. You know why? Because they were black guys. And you're living in Birmingham, Alabama in 1967, and George Wallace is the governor, and he's not going to let him go to college. And he's like, what? Last time I checked, uh, there's only one race, the human race, right? And, but, but having said all that, to say, you know, we can't be happy unless we have, let's see, in Duncan, there's 5.7% of the people are black. We've got to get 5.7 black people here on Sunday mornings, and what is it? About 89% are Hispanic now. We got no, I mean, whatever it is, uh, seems like it's growing. Uh, I think you just do what you do. You have no barriers and see who shows up, and you love them, right? That's my theory, okay? And the circle that holds us together is the gospel. Now, a distinction I'm going to make, and we're almost done, but um, when we're talking about the unity of the church that exists, we don't have to manufacture it, Sean. We just have to celebrate and manifest it. Uh, I'm talking about capital C church. The capital C church is the church that has an inherent organic unity because we have the same object of faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. The lowercase c church is the local church, okay? That's what, it's visible. It's sometimes called the visible church. Visible church is the church, First Baptist Church, First Presbyterian Church, First Methodist Church, Bethel Assembly of God Church, Tanglewood Bible Fellowship Church. Those are local churches. Uh, in local churches, you've got some people who are believers, a few probably on the fridges who aren't. You've got some people who are really wise and spiritual, some who think they're really wise and spiritual but probably aren't, and others who are trying to figure it all out. You have all those kind of dynamics in the local church, but in the capital C universal church that uh, transcends colors, countries, and cultures, that's the thing ultimately Jesus is thinking about here, not the local churches per se, although we're kind of microcosms. On the other hand, I would say I think TBF is a pretty cool-looking laboratory for what Jesus is talking about here in regard to the unity of the capital C church because we are a group. What is, what is TBF, David? We're a group of believers from a wide variety of denominational backgrounds, right, Robbie? Uh, united by our faith in Christ and a desire to grow and reproduce spiritually by focusing on Bible study, fellowship, worship, prayer, evangelism, and moral missions. So that's a pretty good dichotomy of what the Lord is talking about here in this passage. Um, and by the way, look at verse uh, 24, one more th- emphasis on this. Um, he's praying for personal union with the individual believers in heaven ultimately. Father, he's praying that everyone who uh, the Father gives him, who believes in him, will be able to see his heavenly glory because they're going to be in heaven. That's a great promise, but uh, it, he's already said that before. As wonderful as it is, it's emphasized a lot. Jesus says in John 6, this is the will of my Father. Will of my Father just flat happens. That everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have what? 
Spiritual probation? No. Everlasting life, and I myself will raise him up in the last day. Let's look at verses 25 through 26. We've seen who Jesus is praying for. That's us and all other believers in the church age. What uh, Jesus is praying for us that will have unity manifested so the world can notice we're different because we actually love other Christians, not just ourselves. Uh, and then we're going to see how Jesus' prayer is answered and is answered by the united foundational ongoing ministry of the apostles. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you salvifically, yet I have known you, and these eleven have known you sent me. And he, we noticed last week how he brags on the eleven. Even though they leak a lot of oil, he really brags about them. He praises God the Father for the eleven, Peter, James, and John, despite their flaws. And I have made your name known to them, the apostolic witnesses, and will make it known through them so that the love with which you love me may be in them, and therefore I in them. Uh, talking about the foundational ongoing ministry of the apostles, and I want to say one more thing about the apostles and us. We're the same but different. Um, about every two or three years I'll get a letter. I used to be on a mimeograph machine 25 years ago. Now it's kind of higher tech and it looks nice and clean. And some self-proclaimed apostle, most of them come from Tulsa, a few of them come from Dallas, kind of have sent a church to, a letter to every pastor in town and just says, hi, I'm Apostle Billy Bob Jones, and I'm gonna, I've rented the Simmons Center on uh, Thursday night, uh, January the 12th, and we're going to have a meeting of the church in Duncan so that I can tell you what God has told me about your agenda for this next year. I get letters like that occasionally, every few years. And it's always a blessing to get a direct epistle from an apostle. However, I don't believe, I think that guy overrates himself. I don't think he's an apostle. I'm sorry. I think the capital A apostles were unique. They were foundational. And they have an ongoing ministry, not through mimeograph letters, but through the New Testament, right? Which is the capstone of the scripture, right? So the apostles uh, and we as believers have the same basic spiritual rights, but different roles, we have the same Savior, but we're in different settings and functions. And they are the human foundation of the church, and we need to appreciate that. Take this to heart. Uh, you might say, golly, we finished the Upper Room Discourse. What do we do now? Uh, I don't know yet. Uh, I know I'm going to talk about uh, Iraqis coming to worship the baby Jesus next week uh, from Matthew 2. And then David's going to preach from uh, Philippians 2 some of the kind of the, the, the truths behind Christmas, the theological and practical truths behind Christmas. And then the first of the year, I'm going to do a couple of, of special messages, and then we're going to either, you know, as I prayed this through, man, uh, I don't get, you know, direct, like, Brad, you need to preach through Jude and take like 18 weeks. No, I don't hear stuff like that. Um, I just pray about it and kind of look through stuff and look, look and see what kind of notes I've got somewhere. No, don't do that. Uh, and I'm, what I'm hearing is uh, Acts or Judges. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm tempted to try to walk you through the book of Judges, but if I do it, um, we won't spend three years in the book of Judges. We'll do it kind of synthetically. But uh, can you think your way through the book of Judges, Amanda? Can you think your way through the book of Acts? Probably more so, but uh, I'm thinking probably one of those two things, but we'll see. So I know people always wonder about that. Now, let me end this way. I appreciate it when groups, people get together and say, hey, 
we've got to create more unity in the Christian church. And I know what they mean. What they really mean is we've got to help the church manifest the unity that exists. But when you just say it uh, just categorically, we've got to create unity, I don't, I don't like that. As a theologian, I'm thinking, no, you, don't have, you, you can't create it. Nothing you're going to do is going to create it. It's already there. We just need to see it and celebrate it and manifest it. And, you know, in that sense, I guess some people have probably abused denominations because they get so fixed on the denomination, they, they know it's safe, and they're not real sure about everybody else. And that's just a lack of information probably in most cases. But that can happen to TBFers. And not just people who have grown up here. We've had, we've had a lot of people who have plugged into TBF, done well spiritually, then Halliburton, somebody moves them to uh, Duluth, uh, Denver, or Denmark, or someplace. That always starts with the letter D for some reason. And uh, no extra charge for that. But, uh, and then, you know, uh, with social media, there's no excuse. But uh, six months goes by, or two or three years go by, and I, I, I talk to them or connect with them some way. And I'll always say, hey, where are you going to church? And they go, you know what? We, when we moved to Denmark, when we moved to Denver, we looked around for churches for a couple of weeks, and we couldn't find anything like TBF and nobody like Dale and, and Rick Schonelmeyer and great elders like that. So we just decided not to go to church. And you know what? I think they, they think I'm going to go, wow, you know, we're so great. You can find anything as good as us. You stop going to church. I hate that. That's the worst thing you can tell me. So if you move to Duluth, Denver, uh, or Denmark, you better find a church. And if you don't, at least lie to me about it because I, <laughs> I don't like it when people tell me they like TBF so much they can't go anywhere else. That's, the, that's terrible. That's horrible. That's not what we're in business to do to convince you that we're, we're the only way to do church. There's a lot of churches that do things just as good or better than we do. But uh, when people get excited at some of these big meetings and say they're going to create unity, I'm saying, no, it's already there we just need to celebrate it and manifest it beyond a denominational and even our broad theological spectrum, okay? Uh, I could, you know, if we wanted a detailed doctrinal statement for Tangle Bible Fellowship, Dale knows this, I could write a 250-page doctrinal statement that most of you couldn't read, and if you did, it'd put you to sleep, and it would be all perfectly correct. However, we don't want it like that, you know? We're, by definition, uh, we're very inclusive within kind of mainstream evangelicalism, we love Arminians, we love Calvinists, we love pre-tribulationists, we love post-tribulationists, we believe uh, that uh, by studying the scripture we're all going to get closer to where God wants us to be and we give you a lot more freedom than a church with a really picky doctrinal statement without compromising the really things that are really critical. So I think TBF is a really nice uh, environment where you can kind of see this happen so maybe this kind of message makes more sense generally to most of you but this is the kind of message that I think all, all the pastors I know of that, that uh, are, are doing a good work would agree with this, whether they're Baptist, Methodist, or Presbyterian. They agree with essentially what we're saying. So let me finish this way. Our culture has so, gone so far morally, and as far as even the existence of truth the last 50 years, we're way beyond the point where we can spend most of our time battling other Christians, especially on fine points of doctrine that are not essential, Okay. We've got to realize the culture is so far gone, and the Lord several times in the Upper Room Discourse says, the world's going to know that I'm real and I'm legit by the way you love each other, not by the way you argue about your uh, diagram of the end times or something like that. And uh, when I was younger and stupider, I used to love to argue about diagrams of the end times for hours with people. 
And now I don't go there. If somebody says, hey, I'm confused about this, what's your take? I'll, I'll show them my conviction, and I'm excited about it. I think it's right. But I'm not going to spend any time uh, arguing with a Christian who believes in Christ as Savior, who believes in a literal second advent, about the details of pre-trib, premillennialism. I'm just not going to do it, even though I'm convinced it's right. But it's just too far gone for us to argue about stuff like that when we ought to be maybe doing something together to uh, get the word out to a culture that doesn't believe it anymore. Okay? So let's have a word of prayer. Father, as we read this portion of the Upper Room Discourse, we're reminded how intently Jesus uh, approached prayer, how with so much, so much intensity and so much sincerity, realizing that his prayers as part of the process of the plan included to work out your ultimate endpoints. And so I pray when we, when we pray, uh, we'll see it just that way. And he's praying for stuff he knows is going to happen, but he also knows the prayer is part of the process that you're going to use to knit together to make it happen. So that's pretty exciting. We thank you that he's praying for us, not just for the 11, but for us. And for believers at Iglesia Batista Jerusalén, and for believers in Mofrat, Jordan this morning, and for all over, all over the planet, throughout the entirety of church history. But we thank you that for this bubble of time uh, on this corner, we're allowed to uh, embrace the apostolic word about Jesus as Savior, uh, to live it out as best we can in unity with one another here on this corner, and with a unity with and expressing and manifesting and celebrating the unity we have with other believers all over the city, state, country, and planet, and help us to major on those things. The things that Jesus is praying for must be critically important. Forgive us for wanting to spend hours uh, maximizing our chart about the end times when we have stopped talking to people who sit across us in church or who go to a different denominational preference than we have. So forgive us for that. Help us to see our mission is to love you and love other people consistent with the way Jesus prays here. Uh, Father, I want to pray that as we uh, fellowship and then transition to the children's musical, you just help these uh, beautiful little children to be able to, to relax and uh, celebrate Jesus, and we'll celebrate uh, who they are as they celebrate Jesus to your glory. We also pray for our um, Christmas party tonight, Walsh well, Night, that you'd be uh, glorified in that as we get together as a function of our unity as a, a body of believers. We pray these things, all of them, in Jesus' name. Amen.